This is Native America Calling. I'm Andy Murphy. A high school on the Omaha Nation in Nebraska is turning out enough produce to sell at a local growers market. The seven acre farm also provides students with opportunities to learn about agriculture, nutrition, entrepreneurship, and their own native culture. Corn growers from all over the world meet in New Mexico for an annual gathering and celebration, and a former native chef pins a novel with parallels to his own life. That's all on the menu after the news. This is National Native News. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. U.S. Secretary of Housing and Urban Development Marsha Fudge traveled to Kenai, Alaska Wednesday to announce federal funds for tribes. KDLL's Riley Board has more. Fudge appeared at the Kenaitse Indian Tribe's year-old education campus to announce $7.5 million for an affordable housing project. As a leader in the Biden-Harris administration, it is my responsibility to do all that I can to, to give you and support your right to not just live, but to thrive. The money will go to a special group that represents two Kenai area tribes, Kenaitse and Salamatoff. It will fund an 18-unit elder housing project in Old Town Kenai. So far this year, the program says it has served almost 200 households in areas like student housing and homelessness prevention. It also helps with services like snow plowing, fire safety, and urgent home repairs. Carla Wick, chairperson for that Kenaitse Salamatoff housing entity, said the elder housing has been a dream for 20 years. I'm so honored to, to have uh, acknowledgement from the administration to come to our area and, and, and come see us. The money is part of a broader package of $128 million distributed across 22 tribes and intended for affordable housing development. It comes from the Indian Housing Block Grant, which provides funding for housing infrastructure on reservations and related areas. The Clinkett Haida Regional Housing Authority in Juneau is also receiving $7.5 million from this award. In Kenai, I'm Riley Board. A Washington state man was sentenced to two years in federal prison this week for passing off art produced in the Philippines as authentic Alaska Native art, the longest sentence anyone has received for violating the Federal Indian Arts and Crafts Act. Court records show 59-year-old Cristobal Rodrigo must also donate $60,000 to the Clinkin and Haida Central Council's vocational program and write a letter of apology to the Ketchikan Daily News. KMBA's Rhonda McBride reports. The president of Sea Alaska Heritage Institute, Rosita Worrell, says fake art is a growing problem because those who produce it don't consider it a crime. I hope that this sends a very strong and clear message that selling fake art and portraying that it's native made is illegal. The Sea Alaska Heritage Institute sells native art from all over Alaska at its store in Juneau. A lot of our artists live in rural communities where there is no real cash economy. And fake art, World says, steals income that might have gone to Alaska natives. And in the case of the Rodrigo family, the U.S. Attorney's Office says their scheme netted a million dollars in sales during 2019 and part of 2021. Perry Eaton, a Supiakalutic mask carver, says he doesn't think Rodrigo's sentence is harsh enough. The fraud is two-faced. 
it's an absolute slap in the face to the artists, but it's also a fraud to the buyer. The buyer comes to Alaska on his cruise for an experience, and, and the indigenous culture is big in that experience. And you got a fraud. It's a knockoff. The Alaska U.S. Attorney's Office says Rodrigo's wife and son have been named as co-conspirators. Their case is still ongoing. Investigators say the family sold carvings and totem poles that were made in the Philippines and then shipped to two stores in Ketchikan, where Alaska Native workers were hired to sell the art and present it to customers as their own work. In Anchorage, I'm Rhonda McBride. And I'm Antonia Gonzalez. National Native News is produced by Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation with funding by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Do you have feedback, stories, or ideas that you want to share? Now through September 4th, visit online at kowanek.org survey to share feedback and be part of defining our future. That's K-O-A-H-N-I-C dot forward slash survey. Support by the Colorado Plateau Foundation, supporting Native-led initiatives protecting plateau lands, waters, and cultures by building networks, community, and organizational capacity. Grant proposals accepted through September 2nd at coloradoplateaufoundation.org. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network. This is the menu on Native America calling our regular feature on indigenous food and food sovereignty. I'm your host, producer and resident foodie here, Andy Murphy. In this hour, we'll take a tour of a rather large public school farm. Omaha Nation public school students are growing food, including traditional Indian corn and three sisters on more than seven acres. Also in the show, we'll talk with Dene Ryder and former chef Brendan Shea Basham about his novel, Swim Home to the Vanished. The main character, Dene Chef, uh, Dene Cook, who can't seem to escape the kitchen, leaves everything behind to deal with the grief of losing his brother. He lands in a fishing village and in the middle of a power struggle among a family of brujas. Brendan includes a lot of tasty food descriptions, as only a chef could in this debut novel of his. But first, we'll get a report from this year's International Indigenous Corn People's Gathering. The event celebrates traditional corn and brings together indigenous corn growers, seed keepers, and protectors. You can join us, too, by calling 1-800-996-2848. That's also 1-800-99-NATIVE. Share your native food news with us. We're also on social media, Facebook and Instagram at Native America Calling. Joining us now is Andrea Carmen. She's the executive director of the International Indian Treaty Council. She's Yaki. Welcome to the menu, Andrea. Thank you for having me. It's great to be on Native American Calling again. It's been a little while, but um, we are here to share information about very, very exciting event that we just are are headed home from today. Um, the 6th International Indigenous Peoples Corn Conference that was held for the first time in the homelands of the Diné Nation um, near Shiprock 
Tudene Bikaya. I hope that I'm saying it right. Yeah. And it was it was held on um, the family farm of, of um, Chile and Betsy Yazi and hosted co-hosted by IITC and Tuba, which is the short name for the in Navajo for in Dene of the traditional Dene Farmers Association of, of the Shiprock area. Um, which, yeah. If you'd like me to say any more about it, you know, let me know. Um, but it was it was one of the most um, um, important uh, events I think we've ever had, and that's saying a lot. We're 50 years old coming up next year, but it was uh, very, very inspiring and moving and informative, and I think all of us are still feeling that. Um, that that buzz, I guess you could say, from three incredible days there together. Yeah. Yeah, I was seeing a couple of pictures from uh, some folks I know who were uh, attending, and it looks like uh, there were a lot of uh, tribal folks from here in the States and some from Mexico, South America. Uh, can you tell me about uh, some of the attendees? Like, where where are, uh, you know, some of these uh, uh, corn nations coming from? Well, we had representatives at this gathering, and it's the sixth one we've had. We've had one other one in the U.S., uh, hosted by Muskogee Cree in Okima, Oklahoma. We've had three in Mexico and um, one in Guatemala. And we had participants from Corn Peoples, peoples that shared their creation stories and uh, their ways of growing and, and their songs. It was actually so beautiful. We had representatives from corn peoples from Argentina, Guatemala, Panama, Belize, uh, Mexico, uh, Canada, because corn is grown in Canada, um, both in, in Alberta. It's part of their creation story, the Cree. I don't know if people know that. And the Haudenosaunee, which are in upstate New York, um, Six Nations and and um Canada as well. So we had elders, youth, um, women, um, and and farmers, rights activists, some of us that work on these issues at the United Nations, addressing issues like climate change and protection of biodiversity, um, keeping our uh, corn and traditional foods from being patented genetically. And so there was just all levels. But I think the most important thing is bringing the actual growers together to share methods. We're facing a lot of the same threats. And I'm a family farmer, too, as well as being um, an IITC executive director. You know, we're facing real threats from the heat waves we're getting, um, also even floods, but the impacts of uh, the climate crisis. I don't even like to call it climate change. You know, this year where I live in the Sonora Desert in Tucson, Arizona, was the hottest we had ever had consecutively. And was really a struggle to keep some of our plants going. But those that made it, now we know they're drought resistant, they're heat resistant. There was seed trading going on there. Um, people are really looking from all over the hemisphere at um, corn that is uh, suited for dry land. Even if they didn't used to be dry land farmers, people are looking at that now. Uh, so a lot of seed trading went on, not just corn, but you know, melons, squash, you know, um, chilies, uh, beans. We brought some beans from, from um, Tucson that grow with hardly any water, so people really liked those. Um, but also, you know, talking about the impacts, not just of the climate crisis, but of extractives. 
um, there on the Diné Reservation. They have not only the historic impacts of uranium, coal, gold, talked about the ongoing impacts of that gold, um, gold king uh, mining spill that contaminated the San Juan River there in Shiprock, and they still have the impacts of that. But also some of these, uh, what we call fault solutions to climate change, you know, the lithium mining, the helium, the carbon injection, you know, things that are going to further contaminate our lands and are not solutions to climate change. Stopping fossil fuels is the main solution. But we are also working on adapting by, you know, trading our seeds and, and um, helping our seeds to adapt as well to um, the changing climate. So mm -hmm. all that was very exciting. And the participation of youth from all of these countries was also as you know, as Amy said there, you know, we just don't have to grow our food. We have to grow farmers and make sure that these ways, these songs, these knowledges are passed on and practiced to the next generations of our farmers so that yeah. our people can survive. Because it is a matter of life and death of survival now. Mm -hmm. So uh, why why is corn uh, the center of uh, this this conference, this this gathering? Why focus on corn? Corn is one of the central, um, not only you know the valued for nutritional um, and food. We had we had some. I wanted to mention some three uh, traditional cooks come from Guatemala, Chile. Yazi specifically invited them to share their methods, and they cook some of their recipes as well. There, um, we had traditional corn growing ceremonies as well, and and methods of growing it, steaming it in the ground. But also, um, corn people's, uh, their creation stories are about corn. Many indigenous peoples talk about how they were created out of corn. And um, we, that links us together and how corn spread from, you know, where they say it was first domesticated in Guatemala, southern Mexico, all the way down to South America, up to Canada, out to the Caribbean, and also all the way out to the Pacific Islands, where they traded through Rapa Nui. So it's a foundational uh, part of not only our um, culture, but our nutrition. And we're talking about whole ecosystems, though, as well, that sustain corn. The people talked about, you know, knowledge holders, the, the water, the earth, star knowledge, uh, weather knowledge. Um, looking at um, the phases of the moon and how we plant like that. And there's so much similarity. It really joins us together. We've also had other, you know, key nutritional um, conferences. We've had two salmon conferences. Uh, we've had um, a, rain, a reindeer and caribou, an Arctic Food Systems Conference. So these foods bring us together and also are a basis for our struggle for survival and the exercise of our rights as Indigenous peoples to land, water, traditional knowledge, um, cultural heritage, sacred sites and places. Uh, one recommendation was that cornfields be recognized as sacred sites, as birthplaces of our survival. And um, that made it into the final declaration, which we'll finally share. So um, I'm just so excited about what I learned and heard and all the elders, spiritual leaders that were there that shared um, so much uh, mm -hmm. foundational information. 
Right, right. Awesome. Thank you for that. Uh, I, I want to bring in a person who was also there, Amy Wan. She's the administrator, administration manager at the Sanavir Co-op Farm. She's Tohono O'odham. Welcome to uh, the menu, Amy. Skriktas, everybody. Good to be here. Well, awesome to uh, have you here. Uh, so, you know, what, why did you want to um, attend this uh, corn conference that happened earlier this week? Well, we uh, took a crew of four from our farm, the San Javier Co-op Farm, uh, located in the San Javier District, Donald Nation. Uh, myself, our farm cook, uh, Phyllis Valenzuela, our food production supervisor, Ray Antone, and our irrigation supervisor, uh, Joshua Preston. Uh, we took the road trip up to Shiprock and... Um, we really wanted to uh, go and to share, um, of course, to share corn, to share seeds. We took about 40 pounds of 60-day corn and um, some other seeds up to share with everybody, uh, but also to learn, um, you know, us as a farm, as a community, we have our, our own work, our own vision that we're uh, working on in our community to be really self-sufficient and sustainable, um, but also, you know, um, to continue to uh, inspire ways within ourselves and our work to motivate our community um, to continue to grow food and to grow farmers. Like Andrea said, um, for myself, uh, being involved in this, uh, in our food work um, around autumn hook our traditional foods. Right. Uh, oh, sorry about that. We're going to go to a break. We'll be right back. We are uh, talking about food today. We'll uh, be back after this break. Ada Deer will forever be known for making a positive difference for her Menominee tribe and all Native people. She was an effective educator and had a strong voice on the national level, securing landmark policy decisions that are among the most important in history. We'll remember Ada Deer on the next Native America Calling. Program support by the Colorado Plateau Foundation. A Native-led foundation supporting Native-led initiatives protecting the lands, waters, and cultures of the Plateau for generations to come. The Colorado Plateau Foundation helps to build networks, community, and organizational capacity. The Colorado Plateau Foundation is accepting grant proposals through September 2nd. Eligibility information is available at coloradoplateaufoundation.org. You're listening to The Menu on Native America Calling, our regular feature on Indigenous food and food sovereignty. I'm Andy Murphy from the Navajo Nation. There's plenty of time to join our conversation. Tell us about the traditional corn from your tribe or uh, any new and exciting Native food programs or initiatives happening in your area. We're at 1-800-996-2848. That's also 1-800-99-NATIVE. I want to go back to our guest, uh, Amy Wan from Sanavir Co-op Farm. Uh, Amy, you were just talking about your personal uh, connections to the work happening over at uh, uh, the corn conference that happened this week. Uh, can you continue? Yes. So I think this the common theme that I heard from a lot of the farmers and what um, really resonated with me was that teaching. You know, it's good to, it's, uh, it's 
it's good to learn how to grow food, but also while you're doing that work, um, continue to grow farmers. And that was a directive from one of our elder farmers in our community. Um, want to recognize him, Mr. Clifford Pablo, who's really trained a lot of uh, young farmers that are continuing the work today. So that was a theme that I heard um, that I felt was really important for all of us to remember. Um, and it's really um, inspiring and motivating to remember in all of our work because it's hard work, it's backbreaking work, um, it's elite work, as um, some people say, but also remembering um, to pass on these teachings um, to future generations. So um, there was a lot of, of that kind of talk and um, just really, as Andrea said, just really still feeling the buzz. We just pulled in uh, back to Tucson about midnight last night. <laughs> Okay. All right. Um, and uh, what, uh, what what kinds of um, topics uh, or or you know issues did uh, you guys, especially from Santa Vir Farm, uh, bring to the conference? Um, was there uh, maybe a, a panel discussion or anything that uh, really resonated with uh, some of the issues you guys are experiencing over in uh, that part of Arizona? Yes, I I um I specifically um sat on a panel to share about our success in rematriating seeds um back to our community. And um, you know, that's really important as well as is uh I think as a young farmer, um, across the different communities, you know, we're we're relearning um these different ways and we're relearning how all of our stories and our our foods um, and our culture is connected. And so um, really there's a common theme that younger generations are, are knowing, you know, just maybe two or just um, um, specific types of varieties of corn and other foods that we're growing. But by reconnecting to our elders and stories, you know, we learned that there were so many varieties of different corn that we used to grow. So the thing is, how do we get back to that? Where are those seeds? Are those seeds still out there? Are they being held in uh, seed banks um, outside of our communities? And how do we bring those back home? And how do we continue to grow them out? So specifically for Santa Vera Co-op Farm, we've been involved in that work on the Don Autumn Nation, bringing seeds back home from seed banks like Native Seed Search here in Tucson um, and redistributing them um, back to the communities that they came from, the families um, and the people that they came from so that they can grow them because you know, even if these seeds have been in in uh, freezers uh, for 30-something years, they're still alive. And we feel that it's very important to bring them home, um, reacclimate them to the climate, um, the changing climate, um, and continue to grow them so that they can continue to grow with us as we continue into the future. Um, and there was just so many um, inspiring people there. There was big, you know, uh, seed-saving heavy hitters like uh, Clayton Brascopy, um, Steve McComber, um, Carlos Baca, uh, a lot of uh, local farmers who came together to just share their work, their life's work, um, and to share stories. There were also young farmers like Graham uh, Bial, uh, who is from there, from Shiprock, who um, started growing uh, blue corn and other foods uh, from his family after the, uh, during and after the pandemic. Um, so that was interesting, too, for people to share their struggles 
um, through the pandemic, but also how that inspired us to elevate our work and to really see, um, you know, in times of struggle and challenges, are we truly self-sufficient? And if we're not, how do we get there? And um, just also beautiful stories about corn, um, how uh, they're related to our creation stories, how they teach us. Um, as Graham said, there's there's um, teachings in every kernel um, that you will find on the cob um, from the bugs that pollinate the corn and also eating. Um, I got to spend some time in the kitchen between uh, the the Diné women, the women from South America, from Guatemala, and then also us from Donna Autumn, um, all of us in the kitchen uh, cooking up different dishes around corn. So we definitely had a lot of corn <laughs> nice. from eating to drinking and to desserts. And it was just uh, so delicious and just good to spend that time learning together as well because that's where it starts you know where um, aside from the work out in the field um, bringing that into the kitchen and into our bodies and nourishing our bodies and um, keeping our our bodies healthy and taste buds on point uh, with our traditional foods was was really good too awesome Awesome. Yeah, sounds like a really good time. Uh, thank you for for giving us that report, Amy. And um, uh, that was uh, Amy Wan from the Sanavir Co-op Farm. Uh, we just uh, got a report from Herb from the 6th International Indigenous, Indigenous Corn People's Gathering that happened in uh, Shiprock. And it's uh, put on in part by the uh, International Indian Treaty Council. Uh, I want to bring in our other guest we have with us from Macy, Nebraska. Uh, she is Susie French. She's the farm to school director for the Omaha Nation Public School, and she's Omaha. Welcome to the Menu on Native America calling, Susie. Hi, it's nice to be here. Thanks hey. for having us. Yeah, yeah. Like uh, in in the intro, I read, um, I mentioned seven acres. That's a pretty big school garden. I mean, not a garden; it's a farm, uh, and it's a pretty good size, uh, you know, farm. It, it, um, what's currently growing there right now? Currently growing right now, we <laughs> have three acres of Indian corn, which is just the blue corn. Uh, and a and a glass gem corn that we produced, um, watermelon, eleven thousand square feet of vegetables, uh, so like tomatoes, heirloom tomatoes, peppers, hot peppers, um, squash, from zucchini to acorn squash to winter squash to Hubbard squash. Uh, we have a pumpkin patch, which we will give all our students, all our elementary kids, a pumpkin. Um, we have a huge watermelon patch, which produces about 500 watermelons a year right now. Oh, my gosh. Um, and we're processing our Indian corn for our JAG students. That's who uh, works in the garden in the summer. So we, we actually created jobs with this garden for our students okay. so they can be employed. Yeah, yeah, and that's a JAG. Tell, tell me about that program. JAG is uh, it's a Jobs for America's Graduates, and it's led by Mr. Ricardo Ariza, who's my my um, co-partner here. He's the guy that teaches all the kids all year and prepares them for um, when they come down to the garden and and works their little butts off. And, <laughs> <laughs> uh, he gets them all ready. He does a lot of 
employment uh, skills. He does a resume. He gets them ready for college prep, whatever that they need, you know, their scholarships. He does a lot. He does the day-to-day with the students. Um, dedicated. I've never seen somebody uh, so dedicated. Right. Right. Yeah. Like, you know, 500 uh, watermelons, uh, pumpkins enough for, you know, all the elementary students. I mean, that's a that's a huge, uh, you know, a huge, um, you know, kind of operation there. I mean, what does it take to keep everything rolling? What what kinds of uh, responsibilities do the students have from seed to harvest? We um, try to start all our seeds in our classrooms from uh, the elementary up to high school, and then we take them over. We don't have a, a greenhouse yet, but we're hoping. Mm-hmm. Um, so we do everything in classrooms, and they get the seeds started. We plan the garden um, in the classroom with the student, with the high school students or the JAG students, and um, they, they decide what we're going to grow, and then I, I do the layout. And uh, and we get volunteer teachers and start seeds in the classrooms, and we just go weekly with the Jack students to make sure everything's running smoothly and they're growing. And we take them down to um, we take them down to once they get so big, we take them down to in a basement apartment and tend to them until I can take them out to the garden. And then the students come, and they come out and they plant. They they put them in the ground. They water them. We we employ them every from Monday through Friday from eight to two, so they are there all morning every day in the summer. Mm-hmm. Awesome. And then, I mean, they water them. They identify them. They identify issues. They we do soil uh, checks with them to make sure you know they can understand from the we're, we're we are creating farmers. We are building farmers. I guess. Yeah, that's awesome. And, you know, they're, they're learning about the soil, they're learning about, um, uh, you know, science and, you know, all that kind of good stuff. And and then at the end, I guess it's uh, entrepreneurship, right? How, how does that part work? So we, t- uh, the entrepreneurship is programs, they can make jams, jellies in the culinary department. So we have a culinary room where the kids go in and they make pickles and they make um, breads and they make salsas and tomato paste and we're just we keep adding things that they're making but also we show them the biz- the basic business skills on how to become an entrepreneur mm-hmm. you know like they can go in and make jellies and 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 figure out and we we do provide a farmer's market so you know we're, we're just we're just putting that seed in them to develop that entrepreneurship skill that's in there um, they can do home-based businesses here on our reservation, we are a food desert, so they are. There's a lot of home-based businesses, but having the opportunity and seeing it in action and actually doing it here at school, it plants that seed, and we're hoping to build some. You know, get that little seed growing and develop entrepreneurs. Yeah. So, does the farmers market part uh, make money? Is it is it profitable? And then, uh, where does that money go? So. It goes back to the JAG program. It's ran by JAG, and so the students all get uh, run it with um, Ricardo, our JAG guy, and he uh, he sells. You know, he, he oversees them. They learn money skills. They learn people skills. They learn, you know, customer service skills. How to set up a display, along with you know, they're they're making their own products that they have made. 
they're value-added products. So they, they learn a lot in the summer, and we, we get them all out there and so uh, they can speak to people, they can handle money, they can, you know, all those skills that you need to run a business. All right. And then uh, how does the, the farm uh, fit in with state education standards? Right now we are, um, the standards we is, you know, basically what we're teaching them is everyday skills besides the math skills. They're, we're giving them a, a resume, you know, we're helping them with a resume. We get them letters of reference if they need it, their college applications. This is great things for their college applications. Um, Jobs for America graduates does just that. Okay, cool. And uh, we, uh, <laughs> hold on. Yeah, so the, um, so the, the Nebraska educational standard in food, we procure it to our, from our farm to our cafeteria. Mm-hmm. And we also sell it to our cafe. And um, we do, so they, our cafeteria now can buy it from our farm. So that's also making it money, making the program profitable and making it be able to withstand itself. Yeah, yeah. You know, we've, we've got to keep this program going so we have to have some kind of income. We take the um, Indian corn, we traditional, you know, our traditions are all in this from the, the opening prayer, from the time we go to the garden and start to see in the classrooms, there's a prayer set for for it. And then when we harvest, you know, there's a prayer. There's always a prayer. And we have a, a tradition, um, a Native American woman, Lisa Drum, who does our culture with our students during the summer in the afternoon. Mm. So she's, um, we tied our culture right into this. Our Omaha um, names of our vegetables are right there on signs and display in our farmer's market. Nice. And uh, what's the response from the students? I mean, uh, you know, working outside in a farm um, may be, uh, I guess, really fun for some students and may not be fun. Like, what what are you getting from the students? You know, I I talk to them all the time and I um, the, the students, I am so impressed because they they show up for work and they're ready to work. And this this is our third year of production, so mm-hmm. our garden grows every year, and this is our third year, and we we added freshmen, so we were kind of worried that they wasn't gonna get it, or you know they were gonna gonna kind of be choked. But nope, they stepped up. They if they didn't really like it, they just they just hung in there though, because you know they they watered they hand watered this garden because our well went dry the first week. Yeah. So. It was not an easy job to them, but they they hung in there, and then they get to come in the afternoon and into the school in the afternoon and um, do culinary, and then they got to do art, they got to do culture, they got to do like drone technology, they got they had some other things that classes that they could do for two hours in the afternoon. So we got them. Yes, they were hot, tired, and they worked, but they also got to eat the food. You know, we we had we, I try to make it really fun. It's a big, very big area and a lot of a lot of heat that they weren't used to. Mm-hmm. But you know, they they I, I'm I'm so proud of them because they stuck to it. 
Yeah. And what's been the response from uh, administrators and uh, some of the educational leaders who've uh, maybe been involved or toured the place? They love it. Mm -hmm. Um, Well, it wouldn't exist if we didn't have uh, our administration support behind us. Uh, They've been amazing. Um, Ricardo and I, from year one, have been absolutely just been supported hugely by our administration. And our teachers here are all, you know, they step up and try to get involved. Mm-hmm. We're trying to in- incorporate more STEM activities for them, for the students, um, science, you know, technology, math. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, we have different different teachers actually coming in and helping out with that. Okay. And so this this program is just, it just keeps growing and growing and growing and and, you know, I can't say that I, I'm just amazed. I love it. I absolutely am in love with this project. <laughs> okay. All right. Um, that is uh, Susie French from the Omaha Nation Public School Farm. We'll be back after this break. Did you know that there could be a silent killer inside your home? You may know it. Carbon monoxide. It's a poisonous gas that can't be seen or smelled, yet it can kill a family in a matter of minutes. You can protect yours by installing carbon monoxide alarms throughout your home. Find more on the dangers of carbon monoxide and additional safety information at cpsc.gov. Support by the U.S. Consumer Product Safety Commission. Thank you for tuning in today. You're listening to The Menu on Native America Calling, our regular feature on Indigenous food news and stories. I'm Mandy Murphy, and you're welcome to join the conversation. Uh, Tell us about new food programs and initiatives in your area. We're at 1-800-996-2848. That's also 1-800-99-NATIVE. I want to go back to our guest in Macy, Nebraska, Susie French, who is the Farm to School Director for the Omaha Nation Public School. Uh, Susie, um, how has uh, support uh, been like from the tribe um, uh, on this project uh, at the at the school, the tribe um, has supported us by leasing us the seven acres uh, for a dollar for um, eternity. Nice. So, um, you know that's that's a big huge step. Awesome. And um, as far as our, our our council, they're very supportive. They you know they support it. We have they they make sure that everybody supports our farmers market. Our community support, they buy um, a lot of our Indian corn from us. So, yep, they've been very supportive. Nice. All right, cool. Well, um, uh, have uh, one quick question before I let you go and go over to our other guest here. Um, how did all of this get started in the first place? Did it grow from a tiny little garden and then a farm or how? <laughs> nope, it started with seven acres, and it um, because we are in rural Nebraska, and there's absolutely uh, no employment for our youth. Um, Ricardo asked our students what they what they wanted to do, and our students came up with the idea of a garden. Well, um, if, if you and I know you guys don't know Ricardo, but he does nothing very small. Uh, so we started with seven acres, 
and we have um, mapped it out to keep adding and adding and adding within the next five years. Or, you know, in year five, we will, by year five, we'll have small-scale livestock down there and greenhouses and high tunnels. Nice. So, um, yeah, and a fruit, um, we are looking at an orchard. So what we thought of a, as, I'm just like everybody else, a garden being a very small garden, no, it, it it's 11,000 <laughs> square feet just for vegetables. All right. All right, cool. Well, um, thank you for that tour of the farm, Susie. That looks like a really awesome project, definitely kind of addressing that issue of uh, food, um, you know, food desert there in the area. Maybe it won't be a food desert for long uh, if the students have anything to do about it. Uh, I want to go over to our other guest here, uh, Brendan Shea Basham. Uh, he's over in Rama, New Mexico right now. He's a writer, artist, educator, and former chef, and he's Diné. Welcome to Native America Calling, Brendan. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so you are... Uh, the writer of Swim Home to the Vanished, and it's your debut novel. Uh, Tell us a little bit about it. What inspired you to uh, write this book? Um, Well, I had several reasons. I've always wanted to write, um, and cooking has kind of been my uh, fallback as far as careers go. Um, and that kind of uh, ended up taking me to Puerto Rico the same year that my little brother uh, passed. So I had plenty of time, uh, you know, cooking and cleaning fish all day while kind of thinking about, um, you know, loss and grief. And, and But also being in Puerto Rico, it's also kind of a, a, a colony and it's a, it's a reservation of its own. And... Um, getting to witness that other kind of um, or a very similar generational trauma that's happening down there. Um, so eventually I had to leave the restaurant industry altogether and and, and write this book. And um, it got really weird in the process. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, it's, it's been described as... Um you know, magical realism. Uh, explain that a little bit. And, and did you consider that ahead of the time? I knew that I wanted to write something strange um, mm-hmm. just because that's how I see the world. But I also probably didn't really know what metaphors I was kind of conjuring up for my subconscious. And... Um, over time, it kind of became clear um, that I was trying to figure something out, that I didn't really have the language to say what I needed to say. Mm-hmm. And somehow, writing about cooking and such, um, you know, brought some kind of understanding right, and right. familiarity. And, uh, you know, g- give us a kind of like a, 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 a book a trailer of <laughs> this uh, book, um, kind of broadly. Sure. What, what is it about and uh, uh, why focus on, uh, you know, this particular family? Um, so the story goes um, kind of like this, uh, uh, a young 
chef who is Dene uh, loses his a member of his family to mysterious circumstances and tries to escape his old life and tries to search for um, maybe a new connection with his sibling. Um, but through his loss, he kind of needs to develop a new way to breathe and develop skills behind his ears. And um, this kind of triggers him to go on this journey um, because he, he kind of believes that because his brother fell into the river, he thinks that he kind of turned into a fish, and therefore, in his grief, he's also turning into a, a fish. Yeah. Um, and then ultimately ends up in this strange village where he starts cleaning fish for a living. <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I, I just um, got through that part. I'm actually listening to the audiobook, and I'm almost done with it. And, um, I, you know, I, th I think it's a, a really, you know, kind of... Um, uh, you know, has a, has a kind of a you know, sad tone throughout the whole thing. You know, I had it has like for me these like major Tim Burton vibes. Um, I was thinking of the village kind of in those colors. You know, all these minor tones everywhere. You know, that, that that's kind of what it uh, brings uh, to me as I'm as I'm listening to the book. And you bring uh, in Navajo cultural elements, right? I do a little bit. Um, it's a kind of a, an amalgamation of different uh, ways of looking at the world, I guess. And there's not one way to grieve, right? Mm -hmm. um, and it also, I think, it speaks volumes that you know when we deal with this kind of stuff, this kind of trauma stuff. That and. Again, this uh, this book is not really about trauma and grief necessarily. It's all, I think there's a lot of hope in this novel, but it, it's a, it speaks to how we change not only psychologically but physiologically, and we hold traumas in our body and um, you know how we how we kind of pass that along to, through our generations. Right, right. And this book has a lot of, uh, you know, positive uh, depictions of food, um, you know, and, and maybe being a chef, that was pretty easy for you, right? Um, I guess relatively, yeah. I mean, I, in the restaurant, I was pretty much rewriting the menu every week. Uh -huh. um, and in the process, like... I was describing all of my dishes in English and Spanish. Um, I had to cut out the poet stuff, but you know, yeah. it was good practice. And, and, and as much as I like to dismiss a lot of my cooking experience, I don't regret any of it because um, it kind of developed this new language, this new vocabulary for me, or at least expanded on it. Mm -hmm. um, this like sensory world where you're just surrounded by and overwhelmed sometimes by using all your senses at the same time. And sometimes, you know, whatever those sixth or seventh or eighth senses might be as well, you know, those spidey, spidey senses. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, um, uh, l let's hear a short excerpt from your book. Uh, can, can you set it up for us and then give us a sample? Yeah, sure. I'm going to read something from the first chapter, a couple of excerpts. Um, 
And the only thing to know really is that um, Damien did not write a eulogy for his brother, and he's trying to find ways to um, approach it. And in that process, I mean, during that process, he's still working in the kitchen. After boning the trout, Damien rinses and pats dry their slime-shod bodies before sprinkling on a cure, a blend of salt and nitrites, brown sugar, juniper berries. Normally, he feels nothing around these fish. They are more corpse than food, farmed for their tasteless meat in an overstocked pond somewhere far away from here, their eyes coated in a white film. They arrived in plastic packaging, pre-gutted to save time. But Damien does not worry about time in the kitchen anymore. The trout still smell like lake water. It makes his mouth tingle. He tastes the leaves rotten at the bottom, hears the stream trickling into it. He sticks a gloved finger into the, the trout's mouth and feels all its prickly little teeth, when suddenly his back seizes at a sharp pain at the tail of his spine. A shock runs down Damien's sciatic, his right hip into his steamer. A new kind of pain, a longing, which makes Damien nostalgic for a drive, the kind he and his parents and brother went on every few months when he was a kid. The several-hour hot car ride to their grandmother's crumbling government home or auntie's double-wide in Dinebikeya. Damien has cleaned hundreds of fish and mammals, yet he feels different about these rainbow trout now. He considers their consciousness how even these stupid rainbows must have had a spark in their tiny brains, a cold thought squeezed through their two-chambered heart. For a moment, he feels close to the fish, especially as they lie wide open and boneless. He and Kai had always liked dead things, but his brother was braver than Damien, squeezed the grasshoppers, fed them to ants, captured spiders, and made them fight to the death, powdered his cheeks with the sparkle of moth wings. Damien slides hotel pans filled with salted ice into the bottom of the oven and then seals the vents. He splays the seasoned trout onto wire racks to place in the oven above the ice. He feels a gurgle in his chest, finds it difficult to breathe, as if he were a fish who has been out of water too long. He doesn't belong here anymore, but he doesn't know where else he's supposed to be. Maybe that is how steelhead feel before they head out to sea. When anadromous fish return upriver to spawn, how do they know where to go? In an iron skillet, Damien heats wood chips until they combust into flame, then smothers the fire and tosses the smoking pan into the oven. He wonders whether he is preserving life or death, if the smoke is to purify or embalm. He realizes this preparation is a kind of ceremony, like many of the repetitive tasks he chooses to take on rather than assign to his cooks roasting veal bones into the fat and marrow spit, simmering them with mirepoix and wine and spices for 14 hours, straining, degreasing, simmering another half day until the stock has the viscosity of blood. Some rituals are monotonous. Others are an observance, a sacrifice. All right. 
Awesome. Uh, thanks for for reading that. Um, you know, gives you a really uh, you know colorful picture of you know just kind of what's ahead of him, uh, Damien, the main character, um, and then you know what he's what he's thinking about. Of course, uh, you know writers often get asked about uh, how much of the story is based on their own lives. Uh, what do you want to say about that, uh, Brendan? Um, well, there's several journeys uh, when you write a novel and when it takes um, so many years to process and then another so many years to, to, to actually write it and edit it and submit it and do all that stuff. Um, and through that process, well, I mean, it started obviously with the death of my little brother um, in 2006 um, and then not really fully grasping um, its effect on me um, in total. And also in the process of learning about my brother's possible mental illness, um, he, he died, it was very mysterious, but it, all evidence kind of points to a suicide. Mm. Um, so as I'm kind of looking into some of this um, mental illness stuff, I'm, I'm learning a lot more about my own. <laughs> And um, so, yeah, I mean, in that way, those are kind of two ties. But the rest of it, I let myself be free and in, in, in using my subconscious, my unconscious mind. And when you f do that yeah, and you fight, start finding connections that you didn't really notice before. And um, so, yeah, a lot of this is based on some adventures that I've had, but at the same time, I think that it's more because of its particular sense of tone and, and where we end up in the end, I think a lot of readers will be able to grasp with how um, one deals with grief, one deals with trauma, and, and know that there's always going to be hope. Got it. All right. Well, uh, Swim Home to the Vanished uh, was published last week, actually. Uh, came out last week on August 22nd. So it's out there. Uh, Swim Home to the Vanished by Brendan Shea Basham. Uh, thanks again to all of our guests we had on the show today. Brendan, Susie French, uh, Andrea Carmen, Amy Wan. Thank you so much for joining. Uh, join us tomorrow as we remember educator and noted public servant, Ada Deer. I'm Andy Murphy. Do you want to start, manage, or grow your small business? The U.S. Small Business Administration can help. I would describe the SBA as a treasure. They were there to help lay a foundation. They have people that are full of wisdom. I think that's the biggest thing. I wouldn't be where I am without those resources. They've supported me. They've loved me. They've been there. They've showed up, and they believe in what I can do with my business. For your small business needs, go to sba.gov start. All SBA programs and services are extended to the public on a non-discriminatory basis. Support provided by Amerind. Amerind is 100% tribally owned and partners with tribes and their businesses to provide affordable commercial insurance coverage, protect tribal sovereignty, and strengthen Native American communities by helping to keep dollars in Indian country. Information about property, liability, commercial auto, and workers' comp available at amerind.com. That's A-M-E-R-I-N-D.com. 
Native America Calling is produced in the Annenberg National Native Voice Studios in Albuquerque, New Mexico by Kwanak Broadcast Corporation, a native nonprofit media organization. Funding is provided by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting with support from the Public Radio Satellite Service. Music is by Brent Michael Davis. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network.